sit. Well, let me uh, add my own welcome to that of uh, Andrew's earlier in the service. Uh, very good to see you here. Uh, and let me encourage you to uh, take out this uh, handout, this sermon outline that I've tucked inside uh, the service orders. And um, you'll find that if you like to follow along, um, then uh, there are some quotes and some Bible references on there as well that I think will be useful. As uh, Andrew said, we're coming to the end of a series looking uh, five uh, different um, uh, ways, uh, aspects of the cross. And uh, today we look at justification. Many of the uh, headline news stories um, uh, have uh, this demand for justice right at the heart of them. Uh, Think of the recent news of John Venables, one of the boys convicted of killing the toddler James Bolger. It is, of course, a tragic story at so many levels. The issue it raises are are numerous and complex, but at its heart is the issue of justice. We want justice to be done and to be seen to be done. Uh, This week, the terrible story of the rape and murder of the 15-year-old British girl, Scarlett Keeling, has come back into the news, murdered in Goa in India two years ago. Uh, This week, the trial of two men accused of her murder began, and Scarlett's uh, mother, Fiona McCowan, said this on the radio, when justice is done, then I'll feel able to bury my daughter. We not only demand justice, we need justice for peace of mind. It's one of the things that I deal with most often in pastoral discussions because when we feel we've been unjustly treated, it is agony. We desire justice, we demand justice, we need justice and that is right for justice is at the heart of the universe because God is just, uh, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. The one who runs the universe is the one who can be relied upon to act justly. So in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, the question is asked, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the question is expecting the answer, yes, he will. What a relief that is. In a world where often justice is not done, where people get away with murder, where evildoers prosper, it is such a relief to know that there will come a day, judgment day, a day of reckoning, when the God of all the earth will bring about perfect justice. A wanting justice then is right. But have you noticed how we demand justice when we are wronged, but when we are guilty we want mercy, clemency, compassion and leniency. Have you noticed that? It is that tension, that tension between demanding justice and yet wanting justice not to come upon us. It is that tension that is right at the heart of the issue of justification. Justification, this fifth of our big words that we affectionately have called it, that end in shun, that we've been looking at in our lead up to Easter and as we've been exploring the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So far we've thought about substitution, propitiation, reconciliation and redemption. This week, justification. I put a a definition on the handout. I'm not sure how useful this is justification the act of justifying the condition or fact of being justified that helps doesn't it it is being declared not guilty that's really what justification is justification is a legal term as we think of justification we are thinking forensically we're in the law courts throughout the bible you see god is seen as acting in legal categories Uh, In Micah chapter 6, for example, God is presented as the counsel for the prosecution. And I put other references there on the handout where God is seen as acting within a legal framework. 
For the Christian, justification is how God takes guilty sinners and declares them not guilty, righteous, in the right with God. Leon Morris explains it like this. The quote is on the handout. Sin has put us in the wrong with God and justification is the process whereby we are reckoned as right. Now, as we've seen over these last weeks with all these uh, big, great truths, understanding justification matters for eternity and it matters in time. Because being found to be guilty is an awful state and has dire consequences both in time and in eternity. On a couple of occasions as a minister, I have found myself spending time with people who've been prosecuted by the police and taken to court. By far the worst case was of a man in his late 30s. I'll call him Graham. And as I've said throughout this series, I've not only changed names but also circumstances. Uh, None of these people are from this church. There's no way you'll be able to trace them. Uh, Graham was a single man. He worked for a large corporation. He was fully involved in his church. He was a member of a Bible study group. He could tell you how he became a Christian, although being a quiet and slightly timid fellow, he'd be unlikely to do that unless you asked him. Now, one day, Graham called me and said, I've been arrested. It turned out that he'd been downloading pornographic images of children on his computer. His PC had been seized by the police and the evidence against him was overwhelming. He was guilty. And as I met with Graham... He was very clearly a broken man. He was facing a prison sentence, a criminal record, the loss of his job, the stigma of being known as a a paedophile and having his name put on the sex offenders register. He was distraught at the thought of having to tell his sister and his friends what had happened to him. His life had fallen apart and it was all his fault. He was guilty and he was going to hear a judge pronounce him guilty in a court of law. He was going to have a criminal record. And then, of course, there was his relationship with God. As the weeks and months went by, as Graham waited for his case to be brought to court, the weight of guilt crushed him. He couldn't face meeting people, so he stayed at home, becoming a semi-recluse. When he did meet people, he couldn't look them in the eye. When he and I met, he looked down at the floor and spoke in hushed, barely audible whispers. In those weeks he lost weight, looked dishevelled and his eyes had a a devastating emptiness about them. He was guilty and he couldn't bear it. So Graham needed to understand, to believe, to grasp hold of and to internalise the truth of justification. This wonderful truth that sinners can be declared not guilty that sinners can be righteous, in the right with God. And that really matters, because justification matters for eternity, our first heading uh, on the handout. And the first sub-point under that heading, God declares all humanity guilty. You see, the truth is that we are all guilty sinners. Graham knew that he was guilty. He knew that all too well. The problem is most of us don't. Or at least we think we're really not that bad. Not as bad as the Grahams of this world. That's how we think about ourselves, but that's not how God sees it at all. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3, to the second of those two readings that Gwyneth read for us earlier. Page 1130 in the Church Bibles, 1130 and Romans chapter 3. 
Now as we arrive at Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has spent the best part of two chapters demonstrating that all human beings are guilty. That's what he's been doing. And uh, we are guilty of the greatest crime in the universe, not of crimes against humanity, but of crimes against divinity. See, we have all turned away from God. That's the conclusion of Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, that is everybody in the human race, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away, they've together become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one. Now before I go any further, let me ask you, Do you believe that? Do you believe that assessment of yourself? See, many of my pastoral conversations involve persuading people that they are guilty sinners. Or if they admit that they're guilty sinners, trying to persuade people that they cannot justify themselves, that they are that guilty that whatever they do isn't going to make them right with God. Many people I speak to, both churchgoers and unbelievers, think they're not really guilty sinners at all. Paul says, yes, we are. Romans chapter 3, verse 12, all have turned away from God. What a terrible thing. To turn away from the one who gives you everything you have, the one who gave you life, the one who gives you breath, the one who feeds you, the one who loves you, the one who gives you every wonderful gift in life. We turn away from him. We ignore his moral laws for the universe. We spurn his love. And all of us are in the same boat. You see the refrain here, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Verse 12. All have turned away. Verse 12. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one who does good. What a statement. Now, you know, as you read parts of the Bible, do you think, can that be right? There's no one who does good. What Paul is laying out here is what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. Theologians would tell us that you and I are totally depraved. Now don't misunderstand, this is not saying utterly depraved, not utterly depraved. We could do greater evil more often. We're not utterly depraved, but we are totally depraved. Total depravity means that every part of us is affected, even infected by sin so that even our good deeds are tainted by wrong motives. Have you noticed that about yourself? Mark Driscoll explains it really clearly and helpfully when he says, and again the quote is on the handout, your mind is corrupt so that you do not think God's thoughts. Your will is corrupt so that you do not desire what God desires of you. Your emotions are corrupt so that how you feel about yourself, your life and God are not trustworthy. We are sinful through and through, but we don't know that because we can't trust our own thoughts, you see. We are totally depraved, so even our good deeds are tainted by impure and selfish motives. That's why Paul writes, verse 12, there is no one who does good. So even when I do do something that is good, I don't do it for God's glory, but for my own. Look look at what I'm doing now, preaching God's word. That's a good thing to do, isn't it? But my, my motives aren't pure. 
I'm my best moments, I do it for the glory of God, but to my shame, I don't only do it for his glory, I do it for my glory. I want you to say what a great preacher I am. Please, on the way out, tell me how wonderful... No, please don't tell me how wonderful I am. Do you see what I'm doing? When I'm doing this, I am robbing God of what is rightly his. I want the praise. It should be his glory. Now, do you get that feeling? My sin runs right through me all the time. Total depravity. Every part of us and everything we do is affected by sin. Now, I seem to have to spend much of my time persuading people of that. And because we don't grasp just how sinful we are, we think we can justify ourselves. You see, if you don't think you're that bad, then surely you can get yourself right with God. That is what the modern world is telling us. Uh, Most uh, modern secular counselling is about trying to justify yourself, looking for the good inside, looking for someone else to blame. The reason you act the way you do is, well, it's your parents' fault the way you were raised. It's society's fault. It's the government's fault. It's never your fault. It's what modern secular, much modern secular counselling does for you. It's all about justifying yourself, justifying your actions. Have you noticed that? And this desire to justify myself is especially a problem for religious people, people like you and me. I know you don't want to call yourself religious, but that's the point of the parable that we had read out earlier in the service, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. There's no need to turn it up now, but look at it later. At the centre of the parable is the Pharisee trying to justify himself. How does he do that? Firstly, he compares himself with others, with the tax collector. I'm not as bad as that tax collector over there. I'm not as bad as the paedophile, people like Graham. Oh, you can make yourself look very good if you try to find someone who's worse than you because you can always find someone who's worse than you. That's how we try to justify ourselves. And then the Pharisee tries to justify himself by pointing to all his good deeds. He points to his fasting. He's given up chocolate for Lent. What a great person he is. With his praying, I go to the church prayer meeting and have a daily quiet time. For Passion for Life, I'll be here at 9.30 and 6.30 every day. He tries to justify himself with his giving. I've given to the Haiti disaster. I give to the church. My giving's even tax effective. Filled in a covenant form. Do you see what the Pharisee is doing? Do you see the problem with the Pharisee? Do you see our problem? Do we really think that we can pay off God like that? Yes, okay, I'm guilty, God, but look at all this good stuff I do. Fiona McCowan, the mother of murdered 15-year-old Scarlett Keeling, was expressing concern this week on the radio about how corrupt the Indian justice system is. She cited a case where a top official's son had been arrested and she alleged that the top official had then paid the judge to see that the case went nowhere. Now, if that's happening, that is terrible, isn't it? I don't know what it said, but if that is happening, that is terrible. Paying the judge off to make sure that he doesn't condemn the son. Well, that's exactly what we try to do with God all the time. We're trying to buy him off. Look at what I've done, God. I've done all this stuff for you. Surely you can overlook my guilt. I'll pay you off. Justify myself that way. Why do, you, why do we think that way when it comes to God when we don't want that to happen with our judicial system? Why do we do that? 
No, we are guilty. We can't justify ourselves. And the reason that I've dwelt on this point is this. If we're going to glory in the wonder of justification, we need to feel the weight of our guilt, as uh, Graham did. And we need to grasp that to stand guilty before a just God with a criminal record as long as your arm, with crimes against humanity when we've been thoroughly selfish and hurt others and ignored the plight of the destitute while we live in luxury and forgotten the needs of those starving while we have money stashed away in our bank accounts ready to help us through a rainy day, with crimes against humanity and crimes against divinity stacked up against us, crimes which hurt God, our Father who cares for us, we need to grasp that we are guilty and up to our necks in it and we need to feel the weight of the thought of judgment day A day is coming when we will stand condemned before Jesus Christ. We need to feel that if we're going to be amazed by grace. uh, The grace that we were singing about. And if we're going to be overwhelmed by this glorious truth of justification. Because you see, to be declared not guilty when I don't even think I'm guilty in the first place is not amazing at all. Well, then God declares all humanity guilty. And over the uh, page on the handout, the second uh, point under this first point, God declares guilty sinners not guilty in Christ. Let me say that again. God declares guilty sinners not guilty in Christ. It's a wonderful thing, but in view of everything we've said so far, we should really struggle with this. God declares guilty sinners not guilty. We've already said that we want justice to be done, don't we? We want a God who is just and fair. So how can God declare guilty sinners not guilty? Uh, Remember, God is just, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. God himself tells us that he cannot acquit the guilty, uh, Exodus 23, verse 7. We know that God detests those who acquit the guilty, Proverbs 17, verse 15. So what a shock then to read, if you've still got your Bibles open, in Romans chapter 4 verse 5, to read Paul encouraging us to trust God who justifies the wicked. Do you see why that is so shocking? How can I trust a God like that? How can I trust a God who justifies the wicked? Well, Leon Morris puts this brilliantly. I love this quote. This is the, my favourite quote in my reading this week. We're talking about this problem that God justifies the wicked. I mean, he says it might be good news, but it, it doesn't make sense. See, you can argue that this shows God to be merciful or compassionate or kind or forbearing or loving, but you cannot argue that it shows God to be just. you see the problem? How can we trust a God who justifies the wicked? How, come God, how can God justify wicked people? Well, of course, the answer comes between Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, where we're declared guilty, and chapter 4, verse 5, where we're told that God justifies wicked people. And, of course, the answer comes through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we are guilty, but Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from law, has been made known. God has made a way for guilty people to be righteous. 
in the right with God. We cannot justify ourselves, we've already seen that. This righteousness, this, this not guilty verdict comes from God. Do you see it there, verse 22? It's not something we can earn. It's from God and verse 22, it's through faith, through simply trusting God. And how is it possible? Well, end of verse 24, it's by Jesus Christ. And verse 25, by having faith in his blood, that is, his death on the cross. For you see, as Jesus died on the cross, he was taking the punishment that you and I deserve. God does not just ignore sin. He doesn't sweep sin under the carpet. He will not just let people off. That would not be just. Now at the cross he pays the price for sin himself. There's no illustration that really captures this, but uh, think of it like this. You're in the dock in a court of law. You know that you're guilty. So you're not uh, surprised when the judge pronounces the guilty verdict, but you are surprised when the judge then steps down from his seat and comes and stands next to you in the dock. And before you know it, he, the judge, is being led off to serve your prison sentence and you walk free. And not only walk free, but you are declared not guilty because the sentence has been served. Now, of course, the illustration is not good enough at all sorts of levels. It's not good enough because the price that was paid was not just somebody serving a sentence. It was the most costly price. It was the, the death of Jesus. And the illustration is not good enough because it's not just some impersonal judge who takes the sentence. The judge is the one whom you have personally offended. God is the innocent victim, yet he steps in and takes the punishment. What amazing love. How can God justify the wicked? Not by letting us off. Not by simply acquitting the guilty but by becoming the guilty, by taking the punishment. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God, declared not guilty. As we've seen throughout this series, it is substitution which is at the heart of justification. Jesus became sin. He was our substitute so that we might be declared not guilty. That's how God can justify sinners and not be unjust himself in the process. That's what verses 25 and 26 teach. See, Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God didn't just let people off. He couldn't do that. But until Jesus came, Old Testament believers had been declared righteous. People like Abraham, who Paul is going to write about in chapter 4. Abraham and David and Ruth and Samuel and Rahab and you can continue the list of all those Old Testament believers. They were all sinners who were forgiven. And verse 25, in his forbearance, God had left the sins of these people, the sins committed beforehand, before Jesus came, he left those sins unpunished. But he couldn't leave it that way forever. That would be unjust. So Jesus came and died on the cross, taking the punishment for their sin. Do you see, as a sort of aside, Old Testament believers are saved through Christ, just as we are. 
And why did God do it that way? Well, verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. See, the the cross of Christ is the way God can justify the wicked and not be unjust himself. Now please, you may have heard this many times before. For some it will be new. But for many here, you'll be saying, yeah, I know that. That's what we've been taught here for years. Good. But there's a strange thing happens. Often when our loved ones die, we want to change the rules. Do you find this happening? I talk to people who know this, and yet when their loved one dies without Christ, they say, well, they're surely with Jesus now, aren't they? That is not to be faithful to God. And if you think God can do that, you're calling him an unjust God. This matters for eternity. Because we are wicked, you and I need to know that God justifies the wicked. Graham needed to know that God justifies the wicked. Every man and woman and boy and girl who ever lived on planet Earth needs to know that God justifies the wicked. And that is what this week, Passion for Life, is all about. We need to tell people that God justifies the wicked because it is not automatic, you see. They're not automatically justified. It comes through faith in Christ, as you'll see in verse 22. In verse 26, in verse 28, and in verse 30. We cannot miss it if we read this passage carefully. Being right with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Not trying to justify myself, but trusting his death alone to justify me. That's what it means to have faith in Christ. Friends, we need to know that for eternity. If we don't, we will stand before God as guilty sinners. And we will be led away to face his eternal punishment. Locked away from his goodness forever. But it doesn't need to be like that. And so I'm asking you to search your heart this morning. Whether you're here for the first time. Or if you've been coming for years. I'm begging you to search your heart this morning. And to look at your conscience this morning so as to be sure that you know Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you have placed your faith in Jesus, have repented of your sin to Jesus, have received saving grace and the gift of righteousness from Jesus, have been forgiven by Jesus and have been justified by Jesus. Search your heart about this because justification matters for eternity. And if you haven't trusted Jesus, trust him today and stop trying to justify yourself. Justification matters for eternity and uh, secondly and much more briefly, justification matters in time. You see, Graham needed to know this, not only for his eternal well-being, but he needed to know this now, in time. His guilt was crushing him. Now let me tell you that wonderfully, as he came to know this truth of justification and as he came to believe it and trust it and really internalise it, it changed him. Well, he had to do time, 
But he was truly repentant for his actions and in time he was able to feel free from the debilitating guilt that had crushed him. There will be people here today who feel crushed by guilt. If you're not trusting Christ, you need to begin with, with doing that. That's how you get rid of this guilt. If you are already trusting Christ, you need to put your wrongs right. You need to repent and that means confronting those you've wronged asking for their forgiveness. You need to do that. And as you do that, and as you trust Christ alone for this justification, you need to know that Jesus justifies you and your guilt is taken away. It's a wonderful feeling. Look, I have a past that I am mightily ashamed of. And to know this truth, that despite what I can't undo, I am declared not guilty by the Lord Jesus, is a wonderful thing. It means I can put my head on my pillow at night and sleep soundly. Justification. Luther called it the principal article of all Christian doctrine which maketh true Christians indeed. Well, finally, and in conclusion, as we've looked at the glorious cross of Christ over these last weeks, we've seen the most wonderful truths. And here in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, we see them again, coming all together. Will you allow me in these last few moments to paint a picture that I hope will tie together all that we've seen in these last few weeks? I want you just to kind of come on a journey with me and uh, I'll point out these verses to you, these words that we've been looking at. You see, in these verses, uh, chapter 3, 21 to 26, Paul takes us to the law court, to the slave market and to the temple. First, this trip to the law court and this word justification that we've been looking at today in verse 24, it's the picture we've already seen. We arrive at the court and we discover that it's us in the dock. The evidence has been heard. All that remains is for sentence to be passed. The verdict is not in doubt. We know that we're guilty for crimes against divinity. But then as the judge pronounces sentence to amazement, he says, not guilty, there is no punishment for you. And as we leave the court, grinning from ear to ear, a reporter outside thrusts a microphone under our nose and he asks, you pleaded guilty, how can you be justified? We're actually a bit embarrassed by the question. So Paul whisks us off to the slave market. And the word now is redemption that comes again in verse 24. It's the word that we looked at two weeks ago. And horror of horrors, as we arrive at the slave market, we discover we're in chains. We're one of the slaves. Again, we can't quibble. We know why we're in this mess. See, once we had a wonderful master. He treated us better than we deserved. But we abused his his trust and we treated his son appallingly. So we know why we're now in chains. And now a crowd of gruesome slave drivers are haggling over our price. Any one of them will be a a master from hell. And then out of the corner of our eye, we see our old master in the crowd. He's deep in conversation with his son, the son that we abused. And unbelievably, this master pays a massive price for us, a ransom to set us free. The price he paid? It's his son. His son is exchanged for us and we're handed back to our master. We're free. But just for a moment, our delight turns to fear. We know he's a wonderful master, but we know we deserve his anger. Has he bought us to punish us we're face to face with him 
And he greets us lovingly and takes off our chains. You're free, he says, redeemed, the price is paid. But how can that be? Why is the master not angry with us? And to answer that question, Paul takes us to the temple in verse 25. The word is propitiation. It's not actually here in the text, but it's in the original. It's explained in the footnote in the NIV. Propitiation, turning aside God's wrath. And as we walk into the temple, there's blood. You see verse 25? Blood. There's blood everywhere. It's like a scene from the Chamber of Horrors. Someone has died an horrific death. It was a young man in the prime of his life. And you turn to the apostle and ask him, what's happened? And he tells you it's because of the righteous anger of Almighty God. Someone had to die. And who was it that God was so angry with, you ask? Well, with you, of course, replies the apostle Paul. And amazed, you look at the blood and the death that it speaks of. And then you look at yourself, alive and free. And you read verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. And the NIV footnote, as the one who would turn aside his wrath. See the picture in these verses, we see the wonder of justification, of redemption, of propitiation. And all of that brings about the other word we looked at a few weeks ago, reconciliation. Paul introduces that word in Romans chapter 5 verse 10 where he says we are reconciled to God. It's the language of family. Our relationship with God is perfectly restored because of all this other stuff we've been looking at. And all of that comes about through the word we looked at way back in week one, substitution. Jesus our substitute. He was our substitute when we stood guilty in the dock. He was our substitute when we stood in chains in the marketplace. He was our bloody substitute as we went to the temple. He became the sacrifice instead of us. There's nothing cosy and sentimental about the death of Jesus that we'll be rejoicing in in two weeks' time. It was horrific. But it was for us. It was because of love. He loved us. To death. And so, as we understand these big words, big words that end in shun, we realise we owe him everything. Because of him, we have a future to look forward to, a future in eternity with Jesus. And because of him and his death on the cross, we celebrate now in a present experience that makes sense, that is liberating. Pinch the words of the songwriter. We have been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Praise him. Praise him. Praise the everlasting king. Let's pray together. Well, as we've been thinking about justification today, I'm... um, I'm believing there's going to be some people here, maybe, maybe someone who hasn't been coming for long, maybe someone who's been coming for years, who knows and has realised this morning that they're not justified, that they are facing a day when they will come face to face with the living God and they'll come face to face with him as a guilty sinner.
And there'll be some, one or two here today, who've realised that for the first time and have grasped just how guilty they are. And so I'm going to pray a prayer for those who say, I don't want to be in that state anymore. I want to know this justification for myself. And I'll pray this prayer line by line, leaving a gap between each line, so that if that's you, you can echo it in your heart and God will hear it. So let's pray now. Loving Heavenly Father, I realise that I am a guilty sinner. That I am guilty of crimes against you, against divinity. I acknowledge this morning that I cannot justify myself. And I want to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to gain from him justification. I want to trust in him alone. To trust in his death for me. And from now on, I want to serve him. And I want to put aside everything that is against him. Thank you for your forgiveness. Amen. Now I imagine that one or two people will have prayed that prayer for the very first time today. And if you have, uh, please tell me on the way out. Because uh, this is really what the Passion for Life Week is all about. We're praying that through this week many people would understand this for themselves. And uh, I'm praying that today it would start. That this week would be just the beginning of many coming to know the Lord Jesus. Uh, but it would be wonderful if you said to me, that, I've done that today. That would be a great start to our week. Well, let's turn... Uh, to, uh, to sing uh, Born by the